everyone. Thank you for joining us today on Facebook Live. We are coming to you from the ACFE headquarters in Austin, Texas. My name is Mandy Moody. I am the content manager here. And I am joined today by John Warren, our VP and general counsel. Hello. And Andy McNeil, uh, the director of research here at the ACFE. Hi, everyone. And today we're going to be digging into the latest report to the nations. Uh, this is actually the 10th edition of the report. And John has been around long enough to have seen all of those editions, right, that John? That is correct. That is right. And actually, we were just talking about one of the very first reports and how it all came together. And there's a story they pass around here about note cards and uh, paper and pin. I mean, I, I don't know if anyone still remembers what that is, but paper and pin, what what was it like Just in the a beginning? Just less, a little less technically savvy back then. It was all done on paper. We had boxes of survey forms, like six pages long, and we spent maybe a year reordering and restacking and organizing note cards, all to design the fraud tree, which is sort of the structural basis of the report now. So. A little more technically uh, savvy now. We do it by electronic means and have databases and sometimes we break out note cards for fun. Sometimes we break out note cards <laughs> just for you know old times' sake. Let's go ahead and dig in. So I want to start with the controls. That's something that regularly comes up for I know a lot of our members. And just to give you a brief overview, this year we had almost three thousand <clears throat> cases from one hundred twenty-five countries. And of that- Biggest report ever. Yeah. Biggest report ever. Wow. So 18 controls were analyzed, which sounds like a lot, but I imagine they're all equally important. What did the findings this year tell us about those anti-fraud controls and how they're working? Right, so we asked our survey respondents to give us a little bit of information about the controls that the victim organizations had in place when the fraud happened. Keeping in mind that all of the organizations we studied had a fraud occur, we found it really interesting to kind of look at what the organizations that were victimized were already doing to prevent fraud, to detect fraud, and then what the profiles were at organizations that had controls versus those that didn't. And what we found is that across the board, across the board, anti-fraud controls matter. They make a difference. All 18 controls that we looked at, when we compared organizations that had them against organizations that didn't, every single one of them had a, was uh, correlated with the lower fraud loss and with quicker detection. So basically that means they were working. Um, if the organizations didn't have them, they lost more money, they took longer to, to detect the fraud. So they matter. Interestingly though, a couple of the controls that we looked at that had the greatest effectiveness were also the ones that aren't as common. So the two that really jumped out to me were proactive data analysis and monitoring. So companies that are really digging into their data and trying to identify red flags of fraud real time. And then uh, surprise audits. The companies that are not just having their routine audits, they're actually sending people in either unannounced or having them do new procedures or testing new areas or new ways. Both of those controls were among the top of uh, the list when it comes to reduced losses and quicker detection, but only 37% of the organizations in our study actually had those controls in place. So there's room for improvement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it, that's a really good area for people to take this information to their management or to their clients and say, hey, these are areas where if you're not already doing them, you might really look into adding them to your program. On the flip side, external audits, one of the most common controls we had, 80% of the Organizations in our study used external audits, but they're not all that effective in terms of 
reducing fraud losses and detecting right. fraud. That's They're not designed to do that. I think, unfortunately, there's still a lot of people that think that that's one of the primary objectives of external audits. And that does overlap some, but for organizations that are really relying on external audits to be their primary control mechanism to detect fraud, they're going to have higher fraud losses. It's going to take longer to uncover the well, fraud. And that's something oh, you and I were just talking right. about. Recently, we got... I think it was in our online community, and we got a question in about it. What is the auditor's responsibility to find fraud? And your response to them was? That there's a lot of confusion out there. People still think auditors are going in looking for fraud. And while they have to consider fraud as part of their audit, that's not their main goal. Have the audits. They serve an important purpose, but don't rely on them as the the way to find fraud in your company. Yeah, we're not saying don't do all. Yeah, no, they have an important purpose. They're useful, and they, just not. They they did um you know area. they did detect four percent of the cases in our study, so it's not nothing. But they're going to detect only the they're going to detect the bigger frauds. Um, they're going to detect the financial statement frauds, less on the employee embezzlement and asset misappropriation side. Um, so just put them in context with your entire mm-hmm. anti fraud program. Yeah. Also yeah. worth noting, thirty percent of frauds. When we asked what led the fraud to occur, 30% said lack of internal controls right, right. was the primary reason the fraud occurred in the first place. And so I think another almost controls. 20% had an override of internal That's controls. Right, so we're looking right. at 50% of the cases. Some sort of, of control failure yeah. in 50% of cases. So yeah. room for improvement, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And um, some really good information for people to take to, like I said, their management, their clients, and say, we've got data that shows these controls work, um, they're really important, and they're worth the investment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, John, you recently said in one of our meetings when we were talking about findings and and things that stuck out to us, and you even wrote it in the report, people are learning from experience how to steal from their employers. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, it's really interesting. So when we do the report, one of the things we really focus on is trying to understand the characteristics of the perpetrators. We looked at a lot of factors like how long have they worked for the company being one of them, but also what position were they in? Uh, what department did they work in, what was their age, what was their gender, a whole bunch of demographic factors to see if we can kind of understand what leads somebody to commit fraud or what might make somebody more effective at it. And it turns out that tenure is one of the key predictors in how good somebody will be at committing fraud. They're not necessarily more likely to commit it, but when they do it, they're better at it. So there is kind of a dividing line right around five years more. If you have worked for a company five years or less, you, you know everybody in that batch, and then there's a batch of everybody who's worked um, six years or more. The people who've worked there six years or more, the median loss in their frauds is double the loss of the less experienced people, right? So they're stealing twice as much. It's $200,000 per case as opposed to $100,000 per scheme for the less experienced. So the question then is why? Why does that happen, right? So we thought about a number of possible uh, reasons, and the most obvious seemed to be, well, if you've been there a long time, maybe you're getting promoted, right? Because we know from experience, the higher you go on the org chart, the more money you're gonna steal. That's kind of the overriding driving factor. So we looked at that and we said, well, okay, let's just compare uh, executives with shorter tenure to executives with longer tenure, and then do the same thing for managers and the same thing for employees. And in every level of responsibility, the more experienced people still stole significantly more. So what that tells us is that tenure is kind of its own independent driver for fraud Mm -hmm. effectiveness. And 
couple reasons for that, we think. One is institutional knowledge. If you've been in an organization for a long time, you understand how things really work. Like we all have right our actual programs and procedures, and then we know how things really get done, right? And the longer you're yeah. there, the, the, the more <laughs> you understand true. how the gears really turn. And so you know where the holes are going to be. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing, which is, I, I think, maybe even more important, is the concept of trust. Frauds mm -hmm. are crimes of trust. Mm -hmm. When you've been somewhere for a long time, when you've done a good job, when you've established yourself, you tend to engender a certain amount of trust from those who work with you. And are, you know, when you boil controls down to their sort of essence, you need independent verification, you need like two people looking at everything. Somebody's got to be reviewing what you do, right? Mm -hmm. And when you have somebody who's trusted, has a reputation for doing a good job, maybe we're more likely to sign off on something they do without a real thorough mm -hmm. review, or maybe we're not as likely to look closely at their transactions. And Part of that happens because, again, it's important to remember the people who commit occupational fraud up until the moment they do it are typical employees, often very good employees. They so look like everybody else. They look like everybody right. else. That's exactly right. So you can't see one coming, really. And so I think the takeaway is it's really important to make sure your controls are applied uniformly across every position and every person. And we're not doing that because we don't trust the person. We're doing that because we don't know if there's gonna come a point in the time when we can no longer trust right. that person. There's just no way to predict who's gonna commit fraud. The long-term employees are, again, they're more effective at it. And these may be people who you've, you've worked with, you've had dinner with their family, you know them well, it doesn't they matter. They are your family. They are your <laughs> yeah. family, that's yeah. very common. And yeah. one of the most common things you hear at the end of these um, frauds is I can't believe it was right. him or mm -hmm. I can't believe it was her. I never thought that would be the person. Mm -hmm. And so you just need to keep that in mind that no matter how much you trust somebody, no matter how great you think they are, maintain your systems and processes and controls. And that's, a, that's the most important way to protect yourself. That's yeah. what our data indicates anyway. I want to talk about now red flags. Yeah. So something different you guys did this year is you incorporated a lot more infographics into the report, and yeah. we've gotten a lot of compliments on them because it takes it out from just the text on a paper and really lets it tell a story. And one of the infographics this year were the red flags of fraud yeah. and what those are and how, how those show up. We could look at many cases and point out, okay, there's one, two, three, four, you know, right. and that's in hindsight. And one case I read recently was about this worker at the Arkansas Lottery right. who went in and finagled some things internally so that he would win. And the one of the reporters who covered this story said he exhibited four out of the five red flags that are highlighted in this report. And, you know, those are living beyond your means, right. not happy with pay. Tell me about those red flags and tell me how they came about sure. and really how companies can and should use them even before the fraud right. happens. Right, right. And this is really interesting. And the before the fraud happens is key because that's what we're really trying to get at here. And we've been studying these for years. And what you said about the infographics, I think, is right because I don't think we've always done a good job of conveying... Exactly. How, how interesting this data is, right? We had these giant, <laughs> giant charts. We think it's fascinating. And no one else can, yeah, <laughs> fraud nerds. The thing to remember is uh, fraud, 
we tend to treat it, I think people in the industry tend to t treat it as an accounting issue and it's really a behavioral issue, mm -hmm. right? You can have mm -hmm. 10 people in your, say your accounting department and they all have access to the same records, the same systems, they might have similar financial profiles. One of them steals and nine don't. And why is that? There's a reason for that. And we wanted to kind of understand better what that reason might be. So we knew from just past experience and anecdotally that when you read these cases, you tend to see over and over again the same sorts of things. This person had, you know, was living you know, a lavish lifestyle mm -hmm. or they were experiencing financial problems or whatever. Um, so back in 2008, we started looking at this and we did some uh, review of the research and, and literature and we identified uh, 17, I believe it's 17, yeah, 17 common red flags that tend to show up in occupational fraud cases. Mm -hmm. And we just asked our respondents, in the case you looked at, which, if any of these flags showed up or was noticed by someone before the fraud was caught. And the before the fraud was caught is important because, again, we're trying to see were there clues right. mm -hmm. that somebody could have identified if they would have known what to look for. So in the current study, 85% of the cases, there was at least one red flag exhibited mm -hmm. before the fraud. In uh, 50%, there were two. So multiple flags, it's pretty common. There are clues out there is, mm -hmm. is what we're learning. The real thing to keep in mind is there are six that tend to show up every time we do this. There is um, living beyond means is number mm -hmm. one. And that is if you've got file clerk who's uh, driving a Ferrari, mm -hmm. that's living beyond means, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Might want to ask him about that. Where'd that come from? Um, financial difficulties. If you know, you got somebody who's struggling to make ends meet, you know, maybe a spouse lost a job, medical bills, whatever, that com that's commonly associated with these schemes. Too close of an association with a vendor, mm -hmm. you know, somebody's going out, taking trips, things that just seem sketchy. Excessive control issues. They won't let anybody see what they're working mm -hmm. on. They hoard their work because, and the reason they're doing that is they don't want anybody to see the real numbers they're dealing with mm -hmm. because they're covering up their fraud. And then divorce and family problems is probably pretty closely tied to financial issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, we separate it out, but usually that, that means somebody's having financial pressure. And then the sixth is what we call a wheeler-dealer attitude, which somebody's just kind of generally perceived to be unscrupulous, maybe a little slimy. A little shady. Those six have been the top six in every study we've done since 2008. And this is what's really cool. Again, this is a big fraud nerd alert, but mm -hmm. <laughs> we take these <clears throat> all 17 controls and we plot them, right? We say, okay, you know, 40% living beyond means, 30% financial difficulties, and you develop this curve, right? When you apply that curve over different years, you get the same distribution mm. every time. So in each study, we're dealing with an entirely different set of frauds committed by an entirely different set of people, often in different countries, in different regions, in different companies, and yet you're seeing the same distribution of red flags show up every time. It's happened so often that we feel pretty confident that this is just kind of what fraud looks like behaviorally. Mm -hmm. So about 40% of the time, you're going to have somebody living beyond their means, 30% financial difficulties and so forth. There's a lot of information in the report you can look at. You can We've kind of compiled it this year. In the past, you kind of had to pick it from different charts, but we've put it all together in an infographic this year to make it easier to understand. But I think the takeaway is we should be using this in practice more than we are. And it's a little delicate because mm -hmm. 
you can't go every time somebody gets divorced, you can't accuse them of committing fraud, yeah. right? That's yeah. since, oh, you know, somebody's having financial yeah. difficulties. That doesn't mean they're committing fraud. Yeah. This these aren't hard and fast indicators, but what they are are pieces of a picture, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're already seeing weird numbers and you've got somebody who maybe meets these profile points, maybe you look a little more closely at their work. The other side of it is there's a, a school of thought when we you talk about the fraud triangle, for those who are watching who are familiar with the fraud triangle, the, the reason frauds typically begin is because somebody's got a financial pressure. That's I'm making a triangle here. That's the top <laughs> of the triangle. And um, they have some sort of financial pressure that they need to resolve, and that's mm -hmm. why they commit fraud, right? There's a school of thought that says that just allowing someone to relieve that pressure by talking about it, even if you don't necessarily solve it, can lessen the likelihood that they'll engage in the fraudulent conduct. So even on a preventative side, things as simple as like encouraging people to come talk to you when they've got you know yeah. financial problems or something, or family can, problems, or, or family you don't problems want to call or whatever. Like therapist, but exactly open door policies. Open door policies, exactly. That you know, just kind of a, a situation where they feel less like they have to do this because they've got no other way to, exactly. to get out of the problem they're in. So very interesting stuff. You know, hopefully people take a look at it and, and make some use out of that. I think the other really interesting thing that John gets to, to play with the red flags data and he always comes up with some really interesting findings. But one of the things that I really appreciate about the way it was presented this year is we even broke out a couple sort of sub analyses where we break down the red flags by position and we break them down by mm -hmm. gender because we're seeing that people at different authority levels within an organization actually display different red flags mm -hmm. based on you know if they're a manager or an executive that person's pressures are going to look different than mm -hmm. somebody that's a you know a rank and file employee and we actually even find that there's a slightly different red flag profile based on gender right yeah. the the red flags that we see in the male perpetrators are different than what we see in the females and i think that's really interesting mm -hmm. too yeah. it's, mm -hmm. it's not just a blanket right you want to look at the whole picture yeah. when you're looking at the risk profile it's not just like oh this one person drives a car and i don't yeah, know where they got right. it or this one that's person's right. going in a going through a divorce we want to make sure that you're thinking through all of the different pieces of that risk profile and you're kind of seeing some of this being done already in some of the the high-tech side of investigations where people are doing work with unstructured right. text, fraud triangle analytics, or, or you know whatever they may call it, like emotional analytics or yeah. whatever, but looking for indicators in emails and things exactly. yeah. that indicate these, these pressure points. These are kind of, it's kind of the same idea, but I think it's a little more thorough look at this mm -hmm. in terms of like how frequently these different sorts of clues are showing up in these fraud cases. Oh, absolutely. I know that we've I've had conversations with people where they've talked about these red flags and this data sort of being informative to their sentiment analysis and their yeah. textual analytics yeah. initiatives and saying, you know, this really helps us fine tune yeah. what types mm -hmm. of things are we looking for. So, And, you know, one just one last thing, you know, we talked before about you can't always recognize a fraudster. A fraudster doesn't really look like a fraudster. The six most common flags that, that I uh, mentioned before, number six was Wheeler Dealer, which is that's the person who seems a little slimy. That's the one you like could have maybe identified. You just knew they were shady. But they were about 15% of cases. There are other things like living beyond means financial mm -hmm. difficulties that are much more common. So right. the the I knew he was shady is while it's in the top six, it's lower yeah. on that spectrum. Right. It's not as common as other things. So it really does underscore that you can't always see them yeah. uh, coming. A question from somebody watching. How can we balance loyalty and suspicion for employees who have been working more than six years? Ah. 
That's tough, right? Yeah. Oh, um, but, you, but you yeah. look excited to yeah. answer it. Yeah. Well, no. I mean, I suspect everybody. So, <laughs> it's like um, we've all been here more than six yeah. years at this yeah. point, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're all. We're all. No, I, I don't think it's a question of suspicion. I think that's the point: is that you don't want to approach your controls from a perspective of we are doing this because we think you're cheating us, or mm-hmm. we're doing this because we think you're you're. Uh, you know, dishonest or whatever that case may right. be. I think the important thing to remember is when we're ha- when we're implementing controls and processes, we're doing that dispassionately, right? We we do it because it's a process. It's not targeted at Mandy or at Andy. It's that's the way we do things. Right. And as long as we adhere to this is the way we do it in all cases without exception, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like it becomes a loyalty issue or an accusation issue. Mm-hmm. It's just that's the way things get done. Mm-hmm. Right, the concept of trust but verify. Yeah. That's really the, the underscore for controls in general, right? Yeah. It's, we're, we don't want people to feel like you are suspicious all the time and yeah. that everybody's under watch all mm-hmm. the time. Yeah. Um, you still have to get your job done, too. You don't want to set up too many roadblocks to where yeah. things aren't moving. But it's that you know if you build it into your policies and your procedures and you have a general culture that encourages you know, open-door discussions and transparency and the separation of duties and things like that, it has to sort of be baked in, right? Mm -hmm. So that it doesn't end up looking like you're singling out any single person. It's certainly not because they've been there for six years or longer. Mm -hmm. And it can't even look like you're you suspect your entire workforce, right? right. You don't want a situation yeah. <laughs> where employees feel like the management doesn't trust us or, yeah. you know, we're not a part of a team. We talk another big part of the anti-fraud uh, world and, and is the idea of tone at the top. Right. And you need a, not just an ethical tone at the top, but you need a, a tone that runs through your organization that everybody feels like they're pulling in the same direction mm-hmm. and we're kind of all in this together. And when you get people who are resentful of management, who feel like they're being mistreated, who feel like they're being watched too closely, that can actually have the opposite exactly. effect and make them more likely to commit right. fraud. So it is that balance of we're not doing this because we don't trust you. We're doing this because this is the way we do it, because mm-hmm. this is prudent and it's effective. And I think t- to really make that point, that um, that's the importance of anti-fraud education for your employees, right? Yeah. If everyone comes in and learns when they get there and then re- that message is repeated throughout, like fraud is bad, yeah. fraud hurts all of us, we're all in this together, you know, we need to make sure that we're protecting the company as a whole, and it's not just your job or my job to protect the company. We're all doing it because we all want to keep our jobs and we want to keep the company growing. Then I think people might be less likely to feel like, oh, they're overburdening me with, you know, scrutiny. Right. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. Having said that, we do suspect Mandy. <laughs> so let's move on to the other side hotlines, and let's talk about tips coming in. I've covered a few sessions over the past two years about. How do I build a hotline, but then right. not stop it there? How do I make sure it's effective and it's even working? You know, I think right. one of the right. things that people think is if I build it, oh, we're done, it's there. <clears throat> but you, yeah. you gotta, you gotta grow it, right? Well, and even worse than that is when people are like, we don't have any calls coming in, so we don't have fraud. Yeah, You're like, right. that's actually yeah. the opposite. Yeah. You're, that's really not a good <laughs> that's sign. That's not a good yeah. sign no, at all. No, you don't want to have no calls coming into your hotline. That actually means it's pretty ineffective. So, um, Andy, tell us more about what the data told us about tips and hotlines. Absolutely. So, since we started tracking detection data on you know how the frauds that we we're looking at were detected. Um, every single study tips come out at the top, and not just at the top, but by far at the yeah, top. They number have, one. Yeah, that you know, uh, whatever comes in second is dwarfed by by tips. It's forty percent more or less year over year, and that's like John said. We look at different cases 
every study of thousands of cases, and even still, with those differences, we're still getting about 40% of them come in by tips, which is just mm-hmm. fascinating in its own right. Mm-hmm. But it tells us that the importance of tips cannot be underestimated. If you're a company and you're being proactive about wanting to identify fraud and, and address your fraud risk, you have to be fostering a culture and including mechanisms for people to report their suspicions, even if that means you're going to have to deal with a bunch of HR issues mm-hmm. and, yes. and people that are disgruntled complaining. Those are Which actually, you will. you will, but that, and that's, you know, yeah. that's the byproduct of being serious about detecting fraud. Yeah. So 40% of cases come in by tips. Interestingly, in our data, 53% of those tips were from employees, but a third of them were actually from outside parties. Mm-hmm. So vendors, customers, other third parties, they're bringing tips to the table too. And mm-hmm. I think there's a huge lesson there. A lot of, you yeah. know, we built the hotline, now we're done. It has to be publicized and it actually has to be publicized externally as well. Yeah. yeah. You know, people to need everyone to everyone you deal with. Customers, yeah. vendors. You know, everyone you deal um, with as far as running a business. So whether it's on your website or providing, and I think some companies on customer receipts even mm-hmm. include information about if you have suspicions, here's how to contact us. So there's a lot of ways to do it, but I think it's really important to keep in mind that it's not just in your employees that need to know how to report concerns. We also found 14% of the cases were reported by an anonymous party. And so I think it's really important wherever it's legally allowable to enable exactly Mm -hmm. enable people to to stay anonymous or to provide confidential information there's a lot of reasons that that might be necessary but if you want to be serious about detecting fraud that's something that has to be considered yeah it may be inconvenient it may be hard to follow up but it's still you know you could miss out on 15 percent of your fraud the good news in our study 63 percent of the organizations had hotlines we've actually seen that number go up a little bit over the years so i think Companies are getting the message. This is really important. It's really one of the foundational pieces of an anti-fraud program. And for those companies that do have hotlines in place, we found that they're catching frauds faster, that they're having smaller fraud losses. So it's paying off as well. It's definitely a worthwhile investment. When a company doesn't have a hotline in place, people still report. We, you know, there are other ways to report. One of the things we found out is that when a tip doesn't come through a hotline, it's most likely to go to the whistleblower's direct supervisor or an executive. So I think that means it's really important for people in management positions to know what to do with tips yeah. if they get them. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, you want to make sure that your staff is aware of, hey, somebody might bring a concern to you, and here's what you do with that concern. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. you don't want to have a situation where somebody brought a tip to a manager and the manager sat on it. That's, yeah. that's so counterproductive. And that applies yeah. to hotlines too, that Tandy's point, like you have to be, you can't just have it, you have to follow up on it and you have to show employees you're following exactly. up on it. It's a hard thing for a person mm-hmm. to come forward and provide information about a coworker, maybe somebody they know, maybe somebody they like, that could get that person in serious trouble. I mean, people take this seriously. They they don't do it lightly, and there can be genuine fears about being retaliated against. And so in order to make them feel comfortable making that decision, you have to show them that you're going to be serious about it and follow up. If somebody makes a complaint about something legitimate and nothing gets done, trust me, everybody else who knows about that same incident is going to be much less likely to report yeah, because exactly. they just yeah. saw it just fell on deaf ears. Yeah. And so it undermines the whole uh, effectiveness of your reporting program. Exactly. Someone just asked, how do we encourage people to report better tips? <laughs> you mentioned before, and they said we mostly uh, get trivial ones. Right. Which, and you know, is part, 
Yeah. It's going to happen, deal, right? And part, of, I mean, if you're mostly getting trivial tips, that may mean that you're doing a good job in other areas. And it may yeah. also mean that you've got work to do in terms of training your employees about what's reportable, what yeah. what to yeah. do with those trivial concerns, and what it should be coming through more mm -hmm. formal mechanisms. If you're getting a lot of trivial reports in a certain area, it may be time to have a talk with managers in that area about, hey, here's some stuff that we're hearing is going on. It's not really falling under what we consider the most important mm -hmm. hotline type tips, mm -hmm. but it needs to be addressed. Yeah. So there can be some room for uh, communication there. Yeah, if this, then this. Right, yeah. right. And then, yeah. like, you know, also just making sure your employees know what types of tips you're looking for. You don't want them to feel shut down, yeah. but it's a hard balance. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're never going to get, I mean, to some extent, it's cost of doing business. You're just going to have yeah. a certain number of people who are going to call and complain that someone else ate their yogurt at, in, <laughs> out of the lunchroom or something. Exactly. You can't get rid of that totally. But I think Andy's point about education is key, not just for trying to get people to stay away from the trivial tips, but also because a lot of people genuinely don't right. really know what fraud is, right? Yeah. They may see a behavior and not be sure that it's yeah. impermissible. They may think, well, that's just how business gets mm -hmm. done or that's how we do things here. So <clears throat> really important to let people know kind of your parameter. This is what we tolerate. This is what we don't. This is what you, sh if you see, you should report. This is why you should report it. It hurts us all. It hurts the business. It impacts raises. It impacts jobs. And and just educate your people so they know who to come to. They know what's going to happen mm -hmm. when they come to you. They know they can do it anonymously, assuming it's legal, so they don't have to, if they're afraid of retaliation, that's not an issue. And then they see you follow up, and they know that the company does something about it. And that goes to your tone at the top again. It Absolutely. shows them you, there's a commitment. Well, and along the lines of the tone at the top, if you're getting a lot of trivial tips in a certain area, that may be an indicator of the overall tone in that area. Yeah. Right? Sure. If you've got a bunch of disgruntled people that are centered in one particular area, it may not mean that fraud's occurring, but it may mean that the tone is such that fraud could occur more likely in mm -hmm. that area, yeah. that your fraud risk is higher there. So they may be trivial individually, but it's certainly something that you can watch for a, a cultural perspective as right. well. Yep. Uh, someone also asked, and this is a, a little bit of veer from, from Hotlines, but I'm interested in capability, another element of fraud. Did you spot any learning points in the report about capability or someone's? So that's from the, I want to say it's the fraud diamond. The fraud diamond, or, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the fourth right. element where they break out a couple of the ones that are in the triangle. We didn't specifically test for it, but we did look at a couple of things in terms of position, which the higher up somebody is on the org chart, the more they steal, and that probably speaks in some respect to capability. It may have more to do with access and ability mm -hmm. to override controls, but you would hope at least that the people who have risen in your organization are maybe some of your better employees right. and so yeah, have stronger okay. capabilities. People with higher education levels also committed larger frauds, which may go to, again, to their sort of technical ability or, or, or their capacity. And then, again, the data we talked about, about tenure. Mm -hmm. You know, you've been there longer. Mm -hmm. You've developed skills that are applicable to your job in mm -hmm. your company. And I think that speaks to capability in some What respect. about segregation of duties? Well, well, one of the red flags that we look at, I mean, it's kind of related to segregation of mm -hmm. duties, but control issues are an unwillingness to share duties. Mm -hmm. And that was in 20% of the cases mm -hmm. we looked at. To me, that speaks a little bit to that that segregation of duties and potentially the capability as well. Mm -hmm. If somebody's yeah. able to yeah. keep a closed door on what they're doing, right, right. not share and not shed light, then that, that certainly factors mm -hmm. into it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Something we found interesting, and we actually put this in our press release, is one of the highlights of the report and something we shined a little spotlight <clears throat> on, 
was the criminal fraud referrals yeah. that are declining. So over the past 10 years, the percentage of frauds referred to law enforcement has declined by about 16%. Yes. So what do you think that tells us? Well, that's a, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> so one of the things, just for those who don't know, one of the things we do in the report is we, we try to get a holistic view of how a fraud affects an organization sort of from beginning to end. So we look at who the perpetrator was, what were the characteristics of the victim, you know, how was it caught, all these things. But we also look at what did the victim do afterwards because we want other companies to be able to learn from the experiences of those who've gone through this before. And so we always ask, did you refer this to law enforcement? As you said, it's gone down. In, in 2008, just about 70%, 69% of organizations were reporting their frauds to law enforcement authorities, you know, trying to prosecute the offenders. Over time, there's just been kind of a gradual decrease to where it's now, I want to say, 58%. And we don't know why, right? Mm -hmm. We looked at a couple of, of explanations. Our first thought was, well, maybe they're turning to civil suits instead. Maybe they're trying to go to civil courts and suing for damages and recovering that way. But those rates have maintained, they've, they've been pretty consistent, you know, over the same time period. We also, in our survey, when somebody says that the victim did not report the fraud to uh, law enforcement, we ask them what the reason was for that. And the typical answers would be they're afraid of bad publicity. Mm -hmm. They disciplined the person internally and they considered that to be sufficient. They had reached private settlement or they viewed it as being too costly. Those would be the four most common. So we thought, well, maybe those are going up, right? Maybe mm -hmm. there's been some sort of shift in the decision-making process for organizations, but that's remained constant too. So there's nothing in our data that really says why this trend has declined, but we felt like it's really worth highlighting because it's a really very potentially harmful trend. And the reason, it, a couple of reasons, but one is if a person commits a fraud at company A and company A fires them but doesn't take any legal action against yeah. them, that person's gonna go to work for company B. Yeah. And company B may do all their due diligence and may do a criminal background check on the person and they're not gonna find anything and they're gonna have no idea they are hiring somebody. And with, end up being company A. And they're gonna end up being <laughs> exactly. another company. And, and, yeah. and so and in another part of our report, we talk about most fraud, most occupational fraudsters are first-time offenders and that is absolutely true. But the number of those who are repeat offenders is probably higher than we know simply because so many never get right. referred. So there is a subcategory, and my guess would be it's still under 10%, but there is this category of like predatory fraudsters who just sort of hop from company to mm. company to company committing these crimes. And so that can be really harmful, but it can also be harmful to your own workforce if you catch somebody committing Completely. fraud and you don't punish them. Yeah. And, and on the other side of that, it can have a real preventative effect if they see that person getting perp walked out of the, out yeah. of the office or, <laughs> yeah. or you know, they, they understand that that person ended up getting prosecuted and getting convicted of a felony right. or, or having mm -hmm. to pay significant fines or whatever. So it can be valuable, I think, as a fraud deterrence uh, tool to prosecute these people when you when you have the case. So this is another question from everybody out there, one person out there. Is fraud more likely in financial financial institution organizations? So the greatest number of cases in our study occurred at banks and financial institutions, but we 
try to be very, very clear that that does not necessarily mean more fraud occurs in that industry. We actually think that may be more of a byproduct of where our members are, what organizations are employing CFEs. And we're, you know, we see that a lot of banks are very proactive in hiring CFEs and having them on staff. And those are the people that are responding to our surveys that are um, getting certified through us and that are part of our membership. So mm-hmm. we, we try very to make it very clear that we're not saying, hey, you guys in the banking and financial industry, financial services industry, you guys are at the most risk. Right. We do know that the risk profiles in banks, financial services organizations are slightly different than in other organizations, but it should not be read to mean that they are more likely to experience mm-hmm. occupational fraud. But as with all other companies, there is a significant risk. And Absolutely. When you're an Absolutely. Institution- <clears throat> that deals with huge amounts of money, you're yeah. always going to be at risk. When your so. employees are literally touching cash yeah. all day long, there's yeah. there's a risk there. Right. So, yeah. I want to close this out with something that comes up every year. We always meet to talk about. Okay, what? <laughs> yes. What? Tell us what's going on. What can we? What can? How do we market this? What are we going to say? And you guys always say, you know, a lot of these trends stay the same, but there's significance in that consistency, if you follow that, you know, there's significance in the consistency of it. So what do you mean by that? And what does that consistency say? This is where we really nerd out every two years, right? We get the data in and we have this whole new set. We've we've kind of talked about it a little bit already, right? This whole new set of a few thousand fraud cases and we're diving in and we're running the numbers and we're looking at trends and we're like, oh, this looks just like the last four studies we've done, which, might sound like it could be disappointing, but I actually, the nerd in me kind of loves it because I'm like, we're onto something. Right. We're actually yeah. onto something <clears throat> here. I'm going to bang on the table because <laughs> I mean it. Um, we're on to the fact that, okay, we know that roughly 10% of occupational frauds involve financial statement fraud. Yes. We know that 40% of frauds are going to be detected by tip. We know that these red flags are going to be the most common. We know that these controls have this effect on finding fraud, on um, mitigating losses. Mm-hmm. So it really shows us that even though we're not seeing a lot of new trends, the trends we're seeing are solid. Yeah. If we saw a lot of variation from year to year, it might be harder for organizations to really understand their risks mm-hmm. and to benchmark their own programs. But I think the consistency in the data says this data is really valuable for those things. Yeah, it allows you to draw conclusions. Yeah, you can feel confident that this data means something. Exactly. Or at least that's what the nerd in me thinks. <clears throat> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And something that was highlighted in the letter from the president and CEO from uh, Bruce Doris this year was kind of the origins of the report and why it was even created in the first place was to answer these phone calls that yeah, yeah. Dr. Wells <clears throat> was getting of how much does fraud cost? Give yeah. me a number. <laughs> you know, what what does it mean and what's it doing out there? And so that still stands. You know, this is a way for companies, for individuals to say, this is what it looks like. Exactly. What are you guys' you know, takeaways from being able to show that and to illustrate that? And do you still think there is a need? I'm asking you this because I want you to say yes. But do <laughs> How, yes. how big is that need to illustrate what how much this does hurt an organization or cost an organization and you know what you can do about it? I think there absolutely still is a need because we still get that question right. year round, All right? The time. We do this study every two years and so many times in between the studies we're sending people this report because they're writing in with exactly that question or they're calling us with exactly that question. How much does fraud cost? How do I show 
ROI on our anti-fraud initiatives? Right. How mm -hmm. do I convince my management that this matters, that this risk is actually a risk? And I think the study absolutely serves that purpose. We can say, take this to them. And this year we tried to make it even easier and say, take yeah. this one page to right, them right, and, right, say, yeah. and show that this is the risk that is that you're up against. Mm -hmm. It's you a know? real challenge for people in the anti-fraud industry to say, <clears throat> you know, you're at risk. Everybody thinks the guy next door is at risk. Right. Nobody thinks they're at risk. And, and we've gotten better. Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, you couldn't even have the word fraud in your title in a lot of companies because mm -hmm. nobody wanted to admit it was a problem. And that's, you know, when we started doing this, it was because we just couldn't believe that there was no data out there. That, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't want to be a research organization like this, but we were getting all these questions like, I can't believe nobody's compiled this. And, and what Dr. Wells, the, the sort of germ of the idea was we had access to as good a body of knowledge as existed in the world because mm -hmm. we had these thousands of members who what they did was investigate these cases. And yeah. so we decided to turn that into something that everyone can use. But that's the idea, right, is we want organizations, we want people, we want CFEs first and foremost, but really anybody who's in right. the anti-fraud industry to be able to use this to educate their client, educate their organization about what the risk is, where it lies. It's still a struggle for people to get resources, mm -hmm. get spending for anti-fraud programs. And what we hope this does is kind of show that there's a value to that and there's Thanks a return so. on that investment. One last question that we got uh, via Facebook, do these fraud trends, and this is a great question, do these fraud trends vary in different regions? Yes, in some ways. In and some ways. We actually, if you go to the report itself at the very end, we have um, great little regional breakdowns and we'll be releasing additional regional specific information going forward. There are specific areas where the data looks different in different regions. Um, we see some differences in terms of gender breakdown yeah. of perpetrators. Yeah. Corruption tends to vary based on different reasons, and that's not just our study. Transparency International study mm -hmm. shows that right, as well. Right, so yeah. there's, you know, different types of fraud risks are, are more hot spots in different regions than in others. It's fascinating to me though, because even with the regional variations, the global data is where we see that consistency. The consistency, you know, the tips, for instance, which right. Andy talked about, tips, number one detection method in every region mm -hmm. across the board. The top few controls, you'll see variations in the overall implementation rate, but the top few controls tend to be the top few controls in the, different regions. The position data, you know, right. depending on, on how the, the amounts may vary. And a lot of that in different regions is because outside, you know, in some regions we have fewer cases because we have fewer members in those regions. Mm -hmm. So you get a little more variance in some of the numbers right. in some of the regions in terms of like a few large cases can maybe skew mm -hmm. a median loss a little more. But the overall... Um, trends are still pretty consistent, which is, again, interesting that tells us that fraud's truly a global problem. And the way a fraud happens in Tokyo is not significantly different than the way a fraud happens mm -hmm. in New York or right. Dallas or, you know, Manitoba. It's, mm -hmm. it's a global problem. Well, I've got to tell you where you can find all of this information to dig in even more. This is sneak peek of the printed report. <laughs> and you can visit acfe.com slash RTTN to find the PDF you can download, uh, charts and graphs you can download, and the infographics that you can download. And thank you guys so much Absolutely. for sitting down to talk, about, to talk this. about this. And thank you all for tuning in today.